Well, it's a real pleasure to introduce uh, someone who, uh, again, needs very little, if no introduction. Uh, We are blessed uh, to have John Brooker bringing the word uh, this morning. Yeah, woo, it's great. Uh, And uh, John, I'm trying to remember, you can meander over this way if you want. Uh, I think you guys came here in 2006, is that right? See, I remember really well, don't I? And uh, John and Alicia have just been such servants in our church, working in many, many ways, working with uh, our youth and working uh, on our board, both of them. And uh, John's uh, been our, our strong advisor and help in the area of safety and security, and we are blessed and safe uh, by his watchful eye and his organization. So. Uh, We're blessed once more uh, to hear the word as he brings the word for us this morning. He's part of our team that you'll see from time to time helping me. I had a great week because I wasn't worried about preaching one little bit. So let's welcome John Brooker, please. The first rule is to put yourself in the exact spot so the camera people have the right angle. I was a little bit too far back last night. These are the subtleties that you learn. Well, good morning. So good to see everybody. And again, thank you, Pastor Jeff, as always, for the opportunity to to be up on this part uh, of the the ministry. Uh, We are going to be continuing in uh, the series that he started a few weeks ago uh, entitled Word On. And we're moving into the second section of the Sermon on the Mount. And this weekend we're looking at the Word On Enemies. And so our anchor text is coming out of Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. So if you're able, if you would stand with me and we'll pray. And we'll read read God's word. So Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together with one another and with you in this place, in safety and peace, to worship and to study and to learn. May your spirit open our hearts and our minds for what you have us to learn this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So we're fairly certain, uh, because of the examples and the uh, stories that Jesus would tell, that his audience was primarily Jewish. But we can also be fairly certain that there were some non-Jewish folks uh, in his crowds and his audiences, uh, Gentiles who believed in God and were following Jewish practices as much as they were allowed. Uh, These folks were called God-fearers. And as Judaism was the predominant religion and culture in the region, we can also safely assume that most everyone uh, had some level of familiarity with Jewish customs and sayings. And so that admonition to love your neighbor was most likely very well known. 
So the command comes from Leviticus chapter 19. And what's interesting to note is that there is no Old Testament scripture that adds the phrase or the tag, and hate your enemies. It's nowhere to be found. Now, certainly throughout all of Jewish history, they had enemies. They had lots of them. And they fought with them regularly, often by God's direct command. But God never, not once, never told them to hate their enemies. Now, the Pharisees had taught that one should love those who are near and dear, but Israel's enemies should be hated. I'm not really sure what their rationale for that was, but it occurred to me that it may have been political. Several times in the New Testament, we read of Jewish leaders making decisions based on how they thought the crowds would react. If you recall, they had, at one point they had wanted to arrest Jesus during the Passover, but they backed off of that for fear of the crowd. So whatever their reasoning, this was one of those common traditions, those common phrases that was widely circulated. And it is also not found this boldly stated in any of the rabbinical literature. But again, it was widely accepted and widely circulated. Now, a major question of the day would be, who is my neighbor? And that's a logical question, if you think about it, coming from people who live in a rules-based culture. And if you've ever read the book of Leviticus, you know that it outlines in exacting, sometimes excruciating detail... All the ways that that the Jewish people were to live. Hygiene, health, worship, uh, atonement, sin processes. And everything was exact and everything had an order and everything had to be performed in its order. So they were used to these very stringent and detailed instructions. And on top of that, by the first century, the religious leaders of the time had piled on even more requirements. So to ask who is my neighbor made sense. The teachers of the law even confronted Jesus with this question, although their interest was not uh, an earnest desire to be clear to understand. They were just looking for a way to trip up Jesus and have him say something that they could use against him. And in Luke chapter 10, we get uh, Jesus' response to that question, which was the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, another logical question for rules-based folks would be, just how far is this love your neighbor thing supposed to go, right? Again, it makes sense. They want want to know the requirements so that they don't fall short. But many had concluded that a good Jew was only required to love his fellow Jew. The problem with that is that there are many scriptures that call for love and charity toward foreigners and travelers. The Bible calls these folks sojourners. In Zechariah 7.10, we read, Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. Clearly then, just loving other Jews, other people who were like you, was not God's original intent. If you also notice here the admonition against devising evil in your heart. Does that sound familiar? The condition of our hearts is precisely what Jesus is getting at in all of these teachings here. He's trying to translate external rule following into an internal development process. So if you think about it, Jesus wasn't really 
introducing any new radical concepts here, even though they may have been received that way. Uh, He was simply expanding on what they should have already known. And so by, by this, Jesus was raising the standard. He says in verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So if, if we are to be part of the kingdom culture, we've used that term here frequently as a, another way of describing Christian living. But I like kingdom culture because... It, it, it suggests the idea of a king. <laughs> and we have a king in Jesus, amen? So if you were to be part of the kingdom culture, to be recognizable as a child of your Father in heaven, you must learn to love your enemies as well. You must learn to pray not only those who are dear to you, but also for those who persecute you. Now for the folks in the first century, this might have been a very long laundry list, with the Roman Empire probably right at the very top. And certainly for some of us, we may have a list and it may be growing. So we've talked a little bit about the neighbors, all right? So now I want to pose this question. Well, who is my enemy, right? Makes sense. Now, this may be a deeply personal question. Each of you, each of us may have a different definition based on our own experiences, For some, it may just be kind of an abstract term. Those are people groups that you read about in history books. You hear about enemies on the news. But for others, uh, an enemy has a face. Or faces, an enemy has a name. Because the hurt, because the pain is personal and very deep. And the term enemy involves hatred. It involves hostility and, and harmful actions. That's what it... It, it kind of connotates. It's not necessarily the same as just having a rival or an adversary. In sports, we often talk about sports teams being rivals, right? And though I'm sure there are probably some fanatics, fan fanatics, that uh, like to take that to the, to the extreme. And maybe there's some personal rivalries that might, might raise to the level of enemies, but I kind of doubt it. So my caution is that we don't want to apply that term to another human being lightly, okay? Because it's very serious, and you never know the reaction that you'll respond out of somebody if you start treating them as an enemy when they really aren't, okay? Now, in some cases, others, by their own hatred, their own hostility, and their harmful actions against us, they'll set set themselves up as our enemies. We can't control that. You can't control that. Uh, and, and, but we can control our response, how we respond to those folks. And this is precisely what J- Jesus was addressing. So why would we love our enemies? Common wisdom says that makes no sense whatsoever. That's probably not even safe. Okay? Or smart. One really good reason that I came up with is because God commanded it. Amen? I think that's always a good place to start. Why should I do something? Well, because God told me to do that. Okay. But we don't want to stop there. We don't want to stop there because we need to remember that our interaction with God is not transactional. You know, hey, God does something for me over here. I do something for God over there. I do something for God, and I expect him to do something for me in return. That's transactional. That's quid pro quo. 
Our interaction with God is supposed to be relational. Amen? And if we are in right relationship with God, we will reflect his love. Now, we should know by now that we are all God's children. We are all God's children. But we also know that not all of God's children are in a right relationship with him. But when we're determining how we interact with God's other kids, our siblings, if you will, we're not supposed to factor that part in, right? We're not supposed to factor in their relationship with God and how we treat them. God loves rebellious sinners, amen, which, by the way, includes all of us, dare I say, okay? He loves rebellious sinners so much that he sent his son to pay for our sins, to settle the sin debt, to reestablish the path to right relationship. And again, that's for all of his children, not just the ones who have currently taken that path. When we are in right relationship, then, we desire to have and to reflect God's character. And so to bless and to pray for those who persecute us is to align ourselves with the character of God. Now, this flows out of the eighth beatitude that we find in Matthew chapter 10 uh, in a few earlier verses. And it says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So God commands us to love our enemies, but as any good parent, he also models that behavior for us. God demonstrates his love even on our enemies. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. The blessings of life are showered on those who are evil and those who are good. Now, we may think of a rainy day as a bad thing, but if you've ever lived in a desert climate, particularly in the Middle East, then you understand that rain is most often a very good thing. It's a sign of blessing, and it's a source of life. So God blesses the crops of the unjust as well as the just. Now, if you think that's unfair, I suggest you go read Matthew 20, which is the parable of the workers. You should be straightened out on that one. So at this point now, Jesus brings things into razor-sharp focus with two questions. And the first one, if you only love those who love you. Verse 46 says, if you only love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Love that only seeks a return on investment, a return of some sort, is a business transaction. Love that only seeks a return, something in response, is a business transaction. And we are not in transaction with God, we are in relationship with God. And to reinforce that, God, or Jesus used the purest form of the word love. If you recall from our uh, routine and often study in Greek, uh, the 
Greek word that gets translated one in, with the English word love is actually several different Greek words with the agapaho or agape being the highest or the most pure form of love, right? So that's the one that uh, Jesus used here. And if you think about that, so not only, not only is God saying, I want you to love your enemies, I want you to love your enemies with the same level of love and devotion that you love me. Wow, could you make this challenge even harder? Is there any way that the challenge could get tougher than that? Right? Okay, at least that's my reaction. And so the question you have to ask yourself, are you really practicing the unconditional love of God if you only love those who love you back? And it reminds me um, of a popular insurance commercial where they say, hey, saving money with us is so easy that even a caveman could do it. Well, in in this context, it would be, hey, loving people who love you is so easy, even a tax collector could do that. So the second question, and if you only greet your brothers, verse 47, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Now, the word for brothers here is the Greek word adelphos, meaning from the same womb. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it, it's translated brothers and sisters. So it's biological siblings. That's the intent of the word. And so if you only love your family, your Adelphos, what good is that? Even the Gentiles can pull that off. In fact, some Jewish men would actually pray uh, and thank God daily that they had not been born a Gentile. It reminds me of the story in, uh, in the Bible where the two gentlemen were praying. And the one gentleman over here, he was coming apart. He was on his knees. He was rending his clothes because he knew he was a sinner. He knew he couldn't stand before God. And he was contrite. And he was saying, Lord, just, just forgive me. Uh, and then you had the other fellow on the other side who was probably all puffed up with himself because he wasn't that guy. And he was saying, yeah, yeah, God, thank you. I'm just all that in a bag of chips. Thank you for not making me him. Right? Completely different approach to God. And I think it goes without saying which prayer was actually received by by God. So what does all this say about the culture of the kingdom? Well, kingdom culture does not afford us the option of becoming a closed club. We don't get to make those calls. The gospel is for all people. And the church, us, must open that gospel to all people. We have to take that seriously. We dare not turn away anyone who comes seeking help or hope. We dare not turn away anyone who comes seeking help or hope. Let me say here that we also have a responsibility to be discerning. Okay, Not everyone that we encounter will be seeking help or hope. That's just the reality of the world we live in. God calls us to be gentle, to be sure, to be accepting, to be inviting, but also to be wise. He says, be gentle as doves, but wise as serpents. Amen? So we dare not turn anyone away that's seeking the gospel, that's seeking the hope, that's seeking life. But in turn... We must also never water down the gospel. Okay? 
If you notice, Jesus wasn't a people pleaser. In fact, one of the religious leaders, uh, before they asked him another one of the trick questions, says, Jesus, we recognize that you are not a respecter of persons. And what they meant by that was Jesus had demonstrated that he doesn't care what kind of robes you wear, what kind of car you drive, what your title is, what your job is, what your job isn't, what your history is. He's going to preach you the truth. He's not going to change it because of your status. And they recognize that. And neither should we. So the final exhortation of this passage really seems incredulous, impossible, ridiculous. And you can go on with the adjectives. And he says, be perfect. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Wait, what? (laughs) Seriously? Hold the phone here. I was just trying to get my arms wrapped around this love your enemies thing. I was having a hard enough time with that. Now you're telling me I have to be perfect? I have to be flawless without error? Well, at this point, the temptation, temptation might just be to give up. Throw in the towel. As we said in the military, pop smoke and break contact. <laughs> well, don't quit yet. Let's dig into this just a little bit. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, the end point of these two passages, that is, how we engage those who hurt us, who persecute us, and behave as enemies against us. The end point of those two passages is perfection. So, as I just said, at first glance, this is an unattainable, it's an unreachable standard. Common wisdom says, you can't get there from here. But the command, nonetheless, is clear. If we would be righteous, that is, in that right relationship, we must be as God is. That's perfect. But here's where you can take a little bit of a breath, relax a little bit. The Greek word that's translated perfect is teleoi or teleos, and it means complete or completed, finished. It's used usage in the New Testament uh, is the picture of maturity and being mature in mental and moral character. Uh, It's often using the contrast between children and adults to demonstrate that maturity for uh, for Christian living. But this can only mean completed in Christ. When you you sum up, you read the sum of of the Bible, the Old and the New Testament, that can only mean completed in Christ. It can only mean made righteous in Christ. Colossians 1.28 reads, Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature, that is perfect, in Christ. In Christ. Romans 5, chapter 10, or Romans 5, uh, says, For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, By the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Ephesians 2 reads, for by grace you have been saved, that is, made whole, healed, completed, perfected, through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
hopefully by now we have a better understanding of the topics that Jesus chose for his Sermon on the Mount. Murder, lust, hate, deception, retaliation, hating those who hate, who hate us, obviously do not characterize God. He didn't lower his standards to accommodate us, to accommodate humans. Instead, he firmly established and fixed his absolute holiness as the standard. And though we know that this standard can never be perfectly met by anyone on their own, those who by faith trust in God will align themselves with his character and enjoy the righteousness being produced in their lives. Now, you may have noticed at this point, I haven't said anything about how you are to love your enemies. Well, that's a message for another time. (laughs) Some of you may be thinking, I thought we were going to be here for a while. But let me leave you with a a few suggestions just to get started. First of all, give up. Maybe another, wait, what? (laughs) Just give up. It's the only way that you can be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, and that's to surrender to him. Amen? Give up. This is not give up on God. Again, throw in the towel. This is give up to God. Amen? The second one, trust. Trust. Trust that God knows what's best for his children. All of his children. The good, the bad, the ugly. God created us all. He knows us all. He knows what's best. Trust in that. Also trust that God is going to show you the way to love an enemy. It's possible that what God calls you to do will be different in each case. But just trust that he will make the way plain. And finally, obey. Now, obedience is often a maligned concept, especially in uh, relation to Christianity. Uh, People uh, liken it to confining us into a box. Here's all the things I can do in life. But when you're a Jesus follower, you're kind of squished into this little box and you can only do certain things. Well, the reality is obedience to God's word, to his voice, to his command, is what unleashes his blessing in our lives and the power of him in our lives. It opens the floodgates. So it's not confining, it's freeing. Amen? And obedience is what most vividly identifies us as God's children. Now going back to the sports analogy... When you walk into a football stadium, if you were watching the game, I guess there was some big game last weekend, I don't know. Um, You have no, it, it doesn't take you, instantaneously, you know what team a fan supports. It's so obvious. They have the face paint, they have the jerseys, they have the things on their head, whatever the case may be. And they have no qualms. In fact, they want everybody to know. They don't care who knows who their favorite team is. It should be no different with us. We should be desirous of being so recognizable that they go, oh yeah, there's there's a Jesus follower. These are Jesus people here. Because they will know we are Christians by our t 
T-shirts. Well, nothing wrong with that. We have T-shirts, right? They will know we are Christians by our praise and worship. Okay, that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. That's one way. They will know we are Christians by the big parties that we hold. Nothing wrong with that. But ultimately, when the chips are down, when the rubber meets the road, when things are tough and not easy, they will know we are Christians by our love. That's right. So love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Gracious and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Help us in all of our days to surrender, to give up. Give us the wisdom to trust and obey. We thank you for your providence. We thank you for your mercy. And we thank you for the eternal hope and future we have in you through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, John Brooker. Great job, John Brooker. Thank you, know, you so much. I have to say what, what thought-provoking exposition. And uh, I, I was just thinking the whole time uh, as uh, John was uh, bringing the word to us, how we live in a world that's all the time trying to tell us who our enemies are supposed to be. And even right now, this very moment, we're, we're in a fragile uh, place in our world. Uh, and, uh, and I want us to, to pray uh, for Russia and to pray for Ukraine and to pray for these things that are going on uh, in our world because uh, they're rather frightening. Uh, you know, I was raised in a time where the Russians were the enemy. And then we went on a mission trip to Russia. And in my mind, I have pictures of faces and families and pastors and people who love Jesus uh, just as much as anybody that, that we would gather together, just love Jesus and share the gospel. They are not the enemy uh, the enemy is the enemy who tries to break the peace in this world. And so uh, I really appreciate um, the, the power of your message, John, and the, and the prayer. And, and I also thought specifically, probably every one of us, if we'll stop for a minute, we might think of an enemy. It might not be your worst enemy, but it might be an enemy that the Lord would have you pray for. Let's pray together. Father, we, we live in this uh, world of uh, fragile uh, peace that is not the ultimate peace, that is not the shalom that you desire to bring. Uh, and, and yet we lift up the hope of the gospel into this world. Lord, we pray for our world leaders. We pray for uh, President Biden. We pray for uh, President Putin. And we pray for others who are... Uh, diplomats, we pray that uh, there will be those in Ukraine uh, and in Russia that will find a way of, of peace. But God, also we pray much closer to home. Perhaps it's a person that has just really gotten under our skin, just really gotten on that last nerve. 
that person who has made themselves an enemy to us. And it's the hardest thing in the world for us to bless them. But God, show us the way that we would be obedient in that. And God, we pray that that you would show us uh, the way to be in continued prayer for those people, for, for that person. And we thank you for that. Thank you for the gospel of peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.